Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. I would like to begin by paying my respects to the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, who are the traditional custodians of the land on which I am coming to you from today. Land where at brainwaves we tell our stories, and land where the traditional custodians have told their stories for many, many years before us, and continue to tell their stories. I would like to pay my respects to Elders past and present, and acknowledge all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners who are listening today. Hello and welcome to Brainwaves on 3CR, 8.55am on your dial, or digitally. I'm Flick Manning and I'm thrilled to be joining you today as you drive home. Brainwaves is a mental health focused show with a lived experience lens. And today on the show, I'm joined by Zoe Simmons for a discussion about mental health after trauma and the effect of community trauma as it pertains to the individual within that community, as well, of course, as advocacy and disability. Zoe writes to make a difference in the world. As an award-winning journalist who's been published hundreds of times around the globe, Zoe uses the raw power of storytelling to capture hearts and minds, helping businesses small and large find their perfect words. When not running her copywriting and editing business or writing articles, Zoe can be found writing books. She's published in three and is working on her first book about her experience as a disabled journalist and her hometown survival within the Black Summer bushfires. Zoe is also a chronic pain and mental health advocate, and she enjoys speaking to the media in order to help usher in change and appropriate representation of people like herself. Zoe, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Zoe, can you describe how mental health has affected you throughout your life? I've been experiencing mental illness for as long as I can remember, but it only really became super apparent to me in my teenage years. And, um, you know, as a teenager and a young adult, it was really quite challenging. And it actually blew my mind to realize that it wasn't normal to think like that. Um, Like I always had all these intrusive thoughts and felt really bad about myself and felt really guilty for existing, to be perfectly honest. And I had periods where I would hurt myself and believe I was deserving of that and I I did at some times want to end it all I guess and I I did try once. It's been quite a big thing for most of my life and it's only I guess relatively recently that I feel like I've gotten more of a grasp on it. It's it's just been oh it's so hard to live with mental illness you know you feel guilty for having it and you feel guilty for existing and you feel guilty for not wanting to be here and then people just say oh just get over it or you know you feel like you can't talk about it because it is so stigmatized and when I was growing up lots of people were like oh don't be a crybaby or you know you're just attention seeking like well maybe seeking medical attention but you know it's this uh, there's just so much stigma around mental health and it, it really annoys me uh especially because it's the stigma that stops people from seeking help. That's such a fantastic way of putting it. And thank you also for sharing that. I know that a lot of people listening have been in a similar boat and maybe are actually in a similar boat right now. 
And so what was your awareness or exposure to the concept, I guess, of mental health? You know, if you heard that term when you were younger, what did that mean to you? I feel like we weren't really educated about it. It's something that's, you know, always been swept under the rug. It wasn't anything that we learned about in school and it wasn't until year 12 really when one of the teachers was like hey I think you might need a talking to so I was like wow I, that would have been way useful years earlier when I was in worse states and you know harming myself more but it just never really was something and I remember when I spoke about it to some family members for the first time they were really quite stigmatizing about it they were ashamed about it and that was really really hard to cope with not only having experiencing mental illness but experiencing the stigma and then I guess experiencing the rejection of people that are supposed to be there for you it was it was really really hard because it, it shouldn't be something that swept under the carpet and kept in the shadows it, it just makes it worse and if we don't know about something we can't fix it and we can't help other people know they aren't alone and we uh, Zoe, thank you so much for sharing that. I know a lot of other people would be in a similar position right now or have experienced very similar things. Some of that stigma definitely still exists and it's great that people like yourself are getting out there and having those conversations because until they hear that, they may not even realise that they are actually stigmatising people in their circle, within their family. Like if it's not something they've experienced personally themselves, sometimes they struggle with that. You've also experienced, I guess, what would be considered a personal and also a community-level trauma, and that's with the Black Summer bushfires. So bushfires of 2019-2020 were horrific, and it was, it was really hard on a personal level because that's not something I ever expected to experience. I never thought I'd be in a natural disaster. Uh, so the morning of the fires, which was New Year's Eve, uh, we were planning to celebrate I was going to go down to the local bowling club and drink and play barefoot bowls. Um, but we woke up that morning to firefighters in our streets and orange skies and birds flying away screaming. And I vividly remember this leaf that fell from the sky. Like There were lots of leaves falling from the sky, but this one was uh, charred and it was still warm when I picked it up. And that image has never left me. But that day was, it was so horrible. Since we were in suburbia, we hadn't really prepared that much. It was not something I expected to do. And I kept thinking, you know, if I don't do this, we're going to lose the house. And um, my stepdad was planning to stay and defend. So I kept being like, oh, if I don't put this water here, or if I don't put this wet towel under the door, or, you know, close this door, he'll die. And that was a lot of pressure to put on myself. And uh, going to the evacuation centre, everything was on fire. And, you know, there's black smoke in the distance, there's cars backed up and it, it was like an hour or two that I didn't know what happened to my mum and I just kept imagining her burning and uh, that was really hard, uh, especially because most places didn't have reception. Electricity was out in, I think, everywhere except for generators. So you couldn't even call the people you loved to check if they were okay. And I guess even worse to know that I'm lucky that I didn't lose my house. I'm lucky that we didn't die, <laughs> but other people in the community did. And that was really horrible. And, you know, people losing their houses and having nothing, even now, still living in tents or caravans and having nothing, but the world's forgotten about us. And I think that is probably what stings the most, that we are still suffering, but no one seems to really care. And I think that happens with 
most natural disasters, as soon as the next thing comes along, the media moves on, everyone moves on, and just no one really cares. Really difficult. And I don't think people who haven't experienced it really get it. Like I, before the fires, I remember um, I was in my workplace and people were joking about the fires. And I was like, are you kidding me? People in my hometown have just lost their homes. And it's just, I think people in cities just don't get it. You know, it's, I don't think it's a trauma that ever really goes away. And I think we really need to recognize that. The way that you described that, then you painted such a powerful visual image in my mind that I'm sure anyone listening would be in the same boat. It sounds like something out of a movie, you know, it sounds practically apocalyptic. From your experience, how do you think that people in your community started to process the trauma that they were going through at that time and how are they processing it now? I think a lot of people didn't get to process it because we went straight from the bushfires into the pandemic and you know it was just thing after thing and then it was the floods and my my community which is the south coast of New South Wales just kept getting hit and hit and hit and hit and I don't think people really had time to recover from that and you know once I guess everything kind of cleared and we weren't in immediate danger you still don't feel safe I remember coming back to Melbourne after the fires and I was afraid to leave my house because I was convinced that the one tree in my backyard would catch fire and I would lose my house. I couldn't I couldn't go anywhere and you know even now I'm really still affected by it. Anytime I see smoke, I freak out so much. I can't stop that trauma response that occurs. I, you know, sirens, helicopters, planes overhead, the colors red and blue. All those things are just really, really hard. And it's, you know, I think probably most of my community probably feels the same. Not that I can speak for them, but at least the people I've spoken to, like, yeah, you know, we are really struggling still. And emotionally and financially, it's just, it just keeps following you. And when the media is gone and these stories aren't being told, people don't know and people can't help if they don't know. And it's just so exhausting when everyone is trying to do their best but lacks capacity to because they're also dealing with trauma. Uh, uh, I'm writing a book about it. Would you say that the process of writing this book is cathartic for you or would you say that this is more about finding your people again, finding a sense of community? I think both. I think it's definitely cathartic. I know it's definitely cathartic for the people that have gone through it, like they They've told me afterwards how grateful they are that someone is still listening and writing and, and caring because otherwise these stories wouldn't be told. And um, I, I recently finished a bit a couple of chapters about a 72-year-old man that survived um, firebombs the size of semi-trailers and he hid in a cool room and he ended up putting the fire out by hand with buckets. And uh, unfortunately, his... He, he was calling his daughter throughout that time and, you know, checking in that it was safe, but he got cut out from receptions. Like the last thing his daughter heard was, I'm sorry, I'm not going to make it. I've got myself into a position. I can't get out. I love you. And then reception goes and she doesn't hear from him for quite some time. And 
you know, I, I wrote those two chapters with those two perspectives side by side, like his survival and her not knowing if he's alive and her trauma as a result of that. And then their beautiful moment of reunion, which I cry every time I, I cried when I was writing it. I cried when I was, when every time I read it, I cannot read that without crying. And um, I did recently send it to them and they cried as well, <laughs> but they also said that how beautifully it captured it. And I think once more time passes and, you know, we, we have this tendency to diminish our own stories, but I guess seeing it in print is like, oh no, I did go through something traumatic and that's really difficult, but at least it's good to get it out and release it and share it with the world. I guess also help other people going through those same things to know they aren't alone, which is a really big thing with mental health or trauma or bushfires or anything and if someone's listening right now please come and snap up zoe's book yes um <laughs> please <do> that <laughs> because you have experienced you know not only a personal trauma but a community-based trauma uh, which really can compound the experience of the trauma how did that then affect your your illnesses and your disability going forward did it change them in any way and what's that been like for you i mean before the fires i was still in like agonizing pain every single day but it was hard after the bushfires because I was just constantly in that fight or flight state I had so much adrenaline so while I initially didn't feel my pain because of that I was so exhausted because I was always on and with fibromyalgia and chronic illness you already have a reduced capacity to the fact that my body was just on for so many days and even after the fires it kills me that there's so many homeless people still and it just sucks that there was supposed to be this money to help these communities and that hasn't happened how it needs to. That also makes my illness a bit worse because it does take an emotional toll. My mental health was really terrible after that. I couldn't focus. I had a lot more trouble with fatigue. Eventually my pain worsened as well, but I think that significantly impacted my energy levels. It's just exhausting to deal with all the things that come as a disabled person and, you know, just an adult human trying to navigate the world and then, you know, mental illness and then that. I think trauma definitely increases your stress levels, which increases your pain levels. And ugh, I was quite sick for quite a while. I mean, I still am, but it did have a, quite a big impact. And that's not a perspective that we really hear. I mean, I've never heard of it anywhere in mainstream media. Disability already isn't represented, let alone natural disaster disability perspectives. So it's it's very frustrating and that just makes me even more exhausted. And knowing that I have to battle these things in so many different ways, it's just, it's hard. Yeah, you've got to hope that there are some allies out there that are willing to have the conversation and step up. And I mean, look, that's why... It's so important that, you know, we're, we're talking about these kinds of things to try and spark that interest. Just allow people to think about what it's like to be in your shoes or in the shoes of somebody in your community uh, because it could be any one of us tomorrow that goes through a natural disaster or a major trauma. You know, these things are not planned, they happen, and it's how everything gets dealt with, I guess, after the fact that counts. Your book being aimed at a larger group of people, obviously not just the people that experience the trauma of the bushfires themselves, but people outside of that, what do you hope that they will learn? I guess I just want them to know that 
this happened and this happens and this will keep happening unless we do something about it. Like the fact that we're not managing the bush means it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. And as well as, I guess, dealing with climate change, I'm not an expert in that, so I don't exactly know, but it would obviously have an impact. And just there are so many things we could be doing to make things safer and better. We could let you know, local Indigenous people do cultural burns, for example. That would be a great step in the right direction. I know lots of places are doing that, which is amazing, and I think more of that needs to happen. Uh, I guess I also just want to show that anyone can be impacted by a natural disaster. Most of the people I've interviewed were like, never expected to be in a bushfire. Um, and even the people that had been in fires before, they were like, this wasn't a normal fire. This was not like they, they'd fought fires before they'd saved their houses from fires before. And this was not the case. Like firestorms happened. Like it's just wild what happens. And I don't think people realize that. And, that, you know, a fire can create its own weather patterns and it is so unpredictable. When people experience something major, like the loss of their physical items, the displacement at home, obviously there's layers of, layers upon layers of trauma that people are experiencing. For anyone that is listening that hasn't experienced that kind of trauma, what do you think they need to know about the mental health impacts of going through something like that? Well, the year of the fires, the government did, um, you can get like 10 free session, mental health sessions with a psychologist normally through um, a mental health care plan. Um, but if you experienced the bushfires, you got an additional 10. So you got 20 sessions, which was good. But after that year, I mean, I think we have we, we do have extra sessions thanks to COVID, but not extra sessions for the bushfires. And also there's not enough mental health support in these areas because the psychologists that are there, the counsellors are there, were already overbooked before the pandemic, before the fires, and now people are struggling so much more and they can't access the help they need. I actually wrote an article about a year on impact from the bushfires and people have taken their lives because they haven't been able to get that support. And, you know, I think this is also a reason why it's so important that we fund telehealth, not only because it makes it more accessible for people with disabilities and so on, but people in small towns and that may not be able to access these things, but maybe will in another area. I think being in a city like Melbourne, it is still challenging to get support, but it's a lot easier than a small town that doesn't have those resources. So we absolutely need to fund that and make that a priority because people are suffering. People are still not talking about it and people are still feeling like they can't talk about it, like they have to be strong. And you are strong just for going through it and living, but it doesn't mean you have to carry that burden. It doesn't mean that that's yours alone to bear. It's not strength to hold it in i think it's actually strength to let it out government please fund telehealth for so many reasons but also that i'm 100 percent with you on telehealth there it needs to be they, they just can't remove it <laughs> they just can't remove it it has to stay and zoe you have actually talked quite a lot about using storytelling as a method for coping with your mental health conditions how does storytelling work for you why do you find yourself gravitating towards that as your method of coping? I think it's always kind of been my method of coping. I remember even as a young teenager, I'd write novels and, you know, get my emotions out through my characters and poems and 
songwriting and that really helped just to release it. So getting older and developing my writing skill more, I just saw it as an opportunity to share that these experiences happen, to smash stigma, to raise awareness, to create change and help others know that they aren't alone in these battles and that it's okay to speak out. I think when we share our stories, we also kind of help others feel like it's okay to share their stories too. I think it took me a long time to publicly share it because I was so afraid of the stigma and, you know, the treatment I'd had as a teenager and a young person around mental health and storytelling has absolutely been a lifesaver for me. It's a way that I can take those dark emotions and dark experiences and transmute them into something beautiful and something powerful. Storytelling for me is a way to also advocate. When I wrote about my first suicide attempt and I wrote about it a year on that I was glad that it didn't work, which I (laughs) didn't think I would be writing that a year after, but it is so powerful to show that there is hope and that recovery is possible. It's not linear, obviously. There's always ups and downs, but storytelling, I think, is just so, 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 so important and it really does help me. And also I think it not only is a cathartic release for me and like a therapeutic thing, but it also makes me feel better that these experiences are making a difference to even one person, even if one person feels like they are alone or if even one person learns something, I think that is awesome and it just makes me feel really good that I can take those really not so great experiences and make some good out of them and I I hope that encourages more people that it's okay to do the same and it's okay to be seen. So beautifully worded, Zoe, so beautifully worded. How do you think the media can improve how they report and discuss large community traumatic events and, in particular, mental health in related to those traumatic events? I have a lot of thoughts on this topic. I could talk for a very, very long time on this. Um, I'm quite passionate about ethical journalism. I actually wrote part of a book about it, um, which was Kathy Devine's uh, Golden Age Politics, if anyone wants to check it out. Um, It's not all about ethical journalism, but my section was. But I think the first thing that media outlets can do is to ensure that people with lived experience are telling the stories, or if not, that you're at least actively involved. It's not just a story, it's their lives. And these things follow you. And the feeling of being misrepresented or misheard is so awful. And also, I guess the fact that when you have lived experience, you can have a deeper understanding of what those people are going through, which helps in the interview process, but also helps in the writing or production process. So people just coming in without that traumatic or natural disaster experience is not great. And if it's about mental health, have someone that has mental illness actually doing the project. How beautiful is it when you see more accurate representation? It's just so important. So I think the media absolutely needs to do that. But I think they also need to not just leave and forget where are the media crews now, that people are still suffering. You know, if you are in a position that you can commission someone to write something, please do because these stories still matter. No matter how much time passes, they still matter and they're still relevant because they're still happening. Very, very powerful testimony there, Zoe. 
I wish we had more time with you. I know that there's so much more that you could share with us, but I want to thank you so much for being on the show, for being so open and honest and vulnerable with your experiences with mental health, with physical health and your experiences as well as a journalist and someone that really can make a difference in the media space. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. And to anyone that might be listening and resonating with my words, I'm, I'm really glad that I can help. And I think the more we talk about this and share about this, the more we can create change. And, you know, if anyone listening has the power to help do that, please do. And, you know, feel free to reach out. I'm absolutely happy to help with that. I, I just, yeah. And if you're struggling with your mental health, I just, I just want to give you a big virtual hug and just tell you that I love you and that it will, this too shall pass eventually. <laughs> That's so beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing that with our audience. Now, if you do want to reach out to Zoe and have her present or write for you, which I highly encourage you to do, she's very passionate. She will be a welcome addition to anything. Make sure that uh, you do reach out to her online. Those links will be available on the page when you tune in, especially if you are listening to this as a podcast. Uh, and make sure that if you are interested in her book that you reach out as well. I highly recommend that you do. It's going to be some very, very powerful and critical writing that we all hopefully get the opportunity to read. You can also catch up with Brainwaves as a podcast, as I mentioned, on the 3CR podcast page on the app and also Spotify. And we will, of course, be back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. AEST here on 3CR, 855 a.m. on the dial or on your digital as well. As I sign off today, I want to thank you for sharing your time with both myself and Zoe. And I also want to remind each and every one of you that mental health is of equal importance to physical health and that they often can affect each other. So please take a moment right now, if you haven't already done so today, to check in with yourself. Take a big, deep inhale. Nice big exhale. Honour that hard-working body and mind of yours and shower it with some very much deserved love. I can't wait to chat with you next time on Brainwaves. If you're wrestling with feelings of anxiety, worry and depression or finding the current social isolation measures hard to deal with, we would like to encourage you to call Wellways Helpline. Wellways Helpline is a volunteer support and referral service that provides information to people experiencing mental health issues or other disabilities, as well as their family, friends and carers. We're here to talk if you are seeking information about mental health or mental health services or just need someone to talk to. As a peer-based service, everyone working at Wellways Helpline has a lived experience of mental health issues or disability. Wellways Helpline is a national service and operates Monday to Friday, 9am to 9pm, excluding public holidays. If you feel it would be helpful to talk to someone about these issues during this difficult period, please call Wellways Helpline on 1300 111 500. That's 1300 111 500. Wellways supports 3CR. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.